This is the In Self-Defense Podcast with Don West and Sean Vincent, exploring high-profile self-defense cases and identifying the lessons learned for concealed carriers. Hello, everybody. It's Sean Vincent. Thanks for listening in to the podcast today. I'm pleased to tell you that Tatiana Whitlock, firearms instructor, will be joining us once again. Tatiana always brings to our attention some very interesting cases today. We're going to talk about, we're going to call it the Redding, California kidnapping case. And one thing that's going to be fascinating about this conversation is we talk a lot about armed defenders and concealed carriers using deadly force to protect themselves. We don't talk quite as much about concealed carriers using deadly force in defense of others. So this case is a kidnapping case and it brings up the legal questions of uh, defense of others and in many places you're authorized you're justified to use deadly force to prevent a forcible felony kidnapping certainly meets that criteria uh, and in that discussion we're going to find that there's additional nuances that the armed defender concealed carrier has to consider when putting themselves in the shoes of another or using deadly force to prevent a forcible felony if uh if protecting yourself when you feel that you're in imminent uh fear of great bodily harm or death is legally tricky then using deadly force in defense of another or to prevent a forcible felony is even trickier yet uh this case turns out well for um almost everybody involved except for the guy who deserved to be put in jail for 11 years uh we're thrilled to have tatiana back on the show thanks for listening we're joined as always by steve moses firearms instructor and ccw safe contributor and ccw safe's national trial counsel don west he's a veteran criminal defense attorney me i'm sean vincent litigation consultant here's my conversation So, uh, Tatiana, we're, uh, one of the reasons I love having you as a guest in the show is that you bring to our attention very interesting cases that bring up a lot of nuanced details that come up that most people probably don't even imagine will happen when they make the decision to be a concealed carrier or an armed defender. And one of those cases that you sent over to us is, I'm going to call it the Redding, California kidnapping. And this is a domestic violence case that became extraordinarily violent, turned into a kidnapping case, and ended with an armed defender intervening with a uh, very strategic uh, defensive display that uh, ostensibly saved the lives of the women who were kidnapped, if not saved them from extraordinary peril, and resulted in the capture of the kidnapper. And, uh, you know, Don, I shared with you these details and some of the, and you did some of your own research on this. Do you want to give us a, a shot at the, uh, the overview of some of the key facts here? From the, I'll take from the a, I'll, mind I'll of a lawyer? Take, I'll take a stab at it. I, I don't know that I have a full command of the facts because there's quite a bit not known. There have been... Uh, we've had pretty good access to some news articles and things, and we've got a fairly good storyline that the some of the big points were filled in later. But there was this fellow named uh, Carl Holsey, and... Where I'm a little unclear is how he came to be in the presence of these two women that were sisters. I, I think maybe they had come over to his house, one of them, to clear out some personal items that they had. Yeah, I think there. one was maybe a wife and the other one was her sister. And, and the wife had been in like a safe house for, for women who were victims of domestic violence. I think he had uh, had hurt her before. And she thought that she was coming to get some 
of her stuff back at a time where she thought maybe he wasn't home. Speculating that she may have brought her sister along to help with getting the items or maybe as support if he were there. Or look out or, or whatever, yeah. Yeah, but in any event, it, it went really bad and got violent where Mr. Halsey wound up hitting and harming uh, both of them at various points in time there at the house and then wound up uh, taking, I guess we'll call her his, his wife. I don't know whether they were married, but in any event, he wound up taking his wife's sister by force in a car. Am right. I, do I have that right? The, the, and wound up leaving the area and then showing back up fairly quickly at a mini-mart-type place. Sure, there has been a br- River mini-mart. Yeah, there had been a brick involved, some physical assault, some choking, even to the point, I think, of one of the women losing consciousness for a while. So it was very violent and brutal. And somewhere during the sort of the fracas inside, I think the sister of Halsey's companion wound up texting and was able to text an individual that some of this stuff was going on. That was a fact that we learned considerably later because the initial reports indicated that when Halsey got to the store and apparently went inside, as he exited the store, an individual who said he saw this woman clearly in distress, or maybe he even saw the two of them together before he went into the store, in his mind was coming to her aid, coming to her rescue, and drew his concealed licensed firearm, pointed it, at this fellow to basically make him stop and eventually he did stop and then wound up running away so the initial description of what happened was in a sense a good samaritan in a self-defense or defense of others context witnesses this woman in great distress in the company of this fellow at the convenience store and we now know they had just been in a a a domestic violence beating from this guy, both she and her sister. And he confronts the individual at gunpoint. The guy realizes at that point that the Good Samaritan means business. He thinks better of engaging him and essentially takes off. Law enforcement responds quickly and winds up chasing him and then finding him through the use of a helicopter. And then the case is kind of fast-forwarded through the criminal justice system where he faced very serious charges. And he ends up pleading uh, guilty pretty quickly and gets 11 years in prison for the sum of his felonious deeds. I thought that was an interesting fact, that it was 11 years, that it was very, very fast, considering the pace typically of the criminal justice system, with just a matter of a few weeks, maybe only a month or so. That suggests that perhaps he and his lawyer thought the evidence was overwhelming. Perhaps he believed that he would be convicted. Perhaps there were enhanced sentences that he was threatened with if he got convicted in the normal fashion. With a combination of all of that, perhaps, and the advice of his counsel, he thought 11 years was a good result for him and that he got it over with uh, got it over with quickly so yeah well uh, you get an extra uh, 100 bonus points for using the word fracas in your description of that melee that oh, went down reminds me of the old groucho Marx. Uh, i don't know if anybody has ever seen those on rerun none of you guys are old enough to have ever watched them in real time but uh, they had a secret word, the secret word of the day, and oh, if someone right. happened to mention it during any of the conversation during the game show, I think it was a duck, wasn't it? Steve, do you know? No, I oh, remember okay. that show. Was, <laughs> oh, was my. It, what's my line? Uh, no, that um, <laughs> I can't remember what it was actually called, but it was hosted by Groucho Marx. And nice. Anyway, I think it was a duck. The duck would drop out of the, the ceiling on a rope and, with the, the secret word. While and making that proactively, the, the secret word, if it wasn't already. 
Well, Nobody thank could you. know about thank me, so, so you win the prize there. <laughs> Tatiana, one, one of the reasons I think this case is interesting is because we usually discuss, in the most common circumstances, an armed defender uh, protecting themselves from an imminent threat of great bodily injury or, or death. Uh, the statutes almost everywhere also have a provision for defense of others, we don't see that as often. I think we'll agree by the time we're done with this conversation that using a firearm in defense of others is uh, it was certainly legally more fraught than protecting yourself. And as a firearms trainer and a self-defense instructor, how often does that come up with your students when they talk about their motivations for becoming armed defenders, the, the concern of protecting others beyond just themselves? It's typically, I get two extremes, especially in the individuals who are new to the defensive arts and concealed carry and really any defensive tool. There's the camp that of people that come to, let's say, a concealed carry permit application course. And when asked why they're taking that class, it's so that they could essentially be superhero on demand should the need arise, meaning for themselves and for anyone else in distress. And that, of course, we know is third-party intervention, and that's fraught with all kinds of nasty problems. And then we have the other group of people who is very quietly conflicted, and they're not sure how to share with everyone that they're there not because out of this altruistic love for mankind and society and their desire to be able to save everyone in need, but because if it came down to it, they're going to save themselves. And sorry, stranger next to me, I'm in this to save myself and I'm prepared accordingly. Here's to hoping you are too. So those are the two radical shifts that we see. And of course, group number one is extremely expressive and feels very virtuous in sharing their opinion. Group number two is very quiet, introspective, and afraid to share that sentiment because, well, they might be judged as selfish or weak or, you know, not interested in the well-being of other people. And I think we have to come to some, some resolution of where we sit in that spectrum so that we don't put ourselves, our loved ones, in more jeopardy or compound an already dangerous situation. So what? how do you approach the folks who feel like their concealed weapon makes them a superhero? And um, what are your thoughts, concerns, advice for Group A there? Well, there's a couple of fantastic resources out there. I love the book Violence of Mind by Varg Freeborn. He does a phenomenal job of outlining what your motivation really needs to be to carry concealed. And then there's a skills and proficiency uh, examination of what is your marksmanship on demand at the range with no stress, meaning just you and a piece of paper and a target. Then let's add a shot timer and see what some very benign level of stress is. And we haven't even touched upon the fact that in a real force-on-force, -force, deadly force encounter, someone's actively trying to hurt you or someone else. And that level of chemical response internally is going gonna, is gonna to make for some interesting mess in your head and how you respond. So those are the, the easy ways to make people appreciate what they are actually bringing for preparedness and skill to the table. And then, of course, we dive into the legal conversation. There has to be a conversation about what your state says you are allowed to do in defense of others, and you have to appreciate the ramifications of doing that well and potentially of doing it wrong. Yeah. S Steve, you've instructed an awful lot of folks. What is your experience in encountering the uh, armed superhero uh, in defense of others mindset uh it's actually a relatively small percentage of our students uh a lot of people that have that mindset are very much of the opinion already that they're they're adequately prepared for an incident like that and actually looking forward perhaps to being able to do that sometime to just basically say yeah i you know i not only talk the talk i, I can walk the walk uh we caution them uh, for very much of the same reasons that Tatiana was referring to. Uh, we believe that you're kind of opening up Pandora's box. And by the same token, uh, we also appreciate 
that there are circumstances in which intervention on behalf of a third party is is is, is justified and, and and probably morally the correct you know thing to do. Of course, that's absolutely going to be you know loved ones, family members, you know persons that you're immediately responsible for. And then when you kind of start getting out into the periphery there in terms of uh, people that maybe I know casually or maybe people that I don't know at all, uh, we accept the fact that there are some crimes that are just so horrific that perhaps, you know, we might contemplate uh, intervention, understanding that, you know, there may be a tremendous downside, but it's just like, I cannot live with something. I can't live with myself if I saw someone doing something just horrific uh, to a child or perhaps, you know, it was someone you see people that are on church security teams that are basically voluntarily putting themselves into those positions. But we just say, hey, you just need to understand that if you choose to go down that route, it comes with a number of downsides and you need to be well aware of them. Yeah. One thing you said there, and I think we'll circle back to this, Steve, is that when we're looking at defensive others, there's different categories of others. There, there would be your own immediate family, there's friends, there's members of maybe your church group, and then there's uh, perfect strangers in a communal setting. And you may have different thought processes when it comes to each of those. Before we get to that, though, Steve, well, let, let's talk about that. that. Sean. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead, Don. Well, what I was going to say, when you, you when you intervene in a situation in which there are strangers, uh, the chances are that you probably do not have a, a good grasp of all the circumstances that are taking place in this encounter that you probably should know about. And you, you, you might not even know yourself, which one's the good guy and which one's the bad guy. That's right. Or maybe the good guy turns on you. Uh, that's not uh, unusual, you know, when uh, police officers intervene in a domestic violence issue and some guy has, uh, you know, hurt or harmed his partner, uh, they go to take that person in custody and the victim uh, then starts fighting the officer on behalf of the attacker. So there's just a lot of things we don't know. That's interesting. Don, Tatiana touched a little bit about the legal ramifications of the defense of another and uh, w- would you agree that when it comes to the legal justification for using or threatening to use deadly force that the defense of another has a little bit more gray area than the defense of yourself yeah for a couple of different reasons let's use this one as an example to, to sort of peel off some of those layers because there's a lot of stuff going on in this particular case, especially if you were to take out the notion that the person with the gun at the mini mart had some knowledge of what had just happened. Let's say that this person didn't, that the sister had not texted someone, but rather this is a guy at a convenience store who sees a woman that he believes to be in great distress that forms the opinion, the conclusion that she's being held against her will. Perhaps she has been or is continuing to be the victim of some sort of domestic assault, domestic violence. And with that limited information, decides to intervene. Well, at that point, when you are defending someone else, you have essentially the same right to defend someone else as you would have if you were in the same situation. And of course, you never really know what situation the other person is in because you aren't that person. You don't know what led up to it. You don't know, as we talked about before, in a sense, who may be the aggressor, who may be the good guy or the bad guy. But any time that you introduce a firearm into a situation, you run the, the great risk that your perception is incorrect and that you wind up being uh, charged with assault. I should point out, though, that there's some other interesting aspects of this because in a typical self-defense scenario, you have the right to use deadly force to prevent an imminent attack that's life-threatening or threatens serious bodily injury. That's sort of a a base level. 
And I don't know if he thought that's what had actually happened or not. Perhaps he thought she was in danger of her life. I don't know, or being seriously injured. He may or may not have known what had happened before, but it wouldn't be evident to me that she was in that status or that condition at the moment if this fella had already left and gone inside the store. Maybe she was confined, maybe she was scared, too scared to get out of the car, but he had to put a lot of pieces together before he decided that he had the legal justification to display a firearm. Uh, an interesting aspect of this is there's typically two ways that you can use defensive force in one is to protect another that we've described, but also in most jurisdictions, there are certain kinds of criminal offenses, often categorized as aggravated felonies. Some statutes specifically identify which crimes are subject to use of force. But essentially, if you see one of these crimes being committed against someone else or against yourself, you have the right to use up to and including deadly force to prevent the commission of that crime. So if his instincts were right that she was being kidnapped, that's likely within the category of one of those aggravated felonies that would give him the right to use more force than he might otherwise. We don't know if he actually saw a battery or what he may have actually witnessed that in his mind justified the use of force. Let's also keep in mind that there, it's a light years, legally, it's light years between the display of a weapon, even if that weapon is pointed at someone and accompanied with verbal warnings, than it is to fire the gun. He didn't shoot this guy, and I think to his credit, if he believed this woman was kidnapped and being terrorized, and he was there to save her from that, the fact that he didn't shoot the guy is to his credit. He may, in fact, have been legally allowed to do that without himself being in fear of great bodily harm if he believes he was interrupting a kidnapping or some other kind of serious violent felony. Separate and apart from that, though, he didn't shoot him when the guy ran away. And I wanted to point that out just because that's also to his credit. A lot of people, I think, we've when Tatiana talked about those that want to be the hero, I'm sure we can all think of people that we've come across where in that exact situation, as soon as the guy turns and runs, um, some shots get fired. And then the explanation to the police when they get there is, well, he was going to get away, and I was trying to keep him there for you. Tatiana, I'm curious. We've talked on this podcast a lot about the differences between uh, firing a weapon in self-defense and defensive display. And of course, if you're wrong with the defensive display, then it could be something like aggravated assault. It could be brandishing lots of places, charge things in different ways. You're taking on an extraordinary uh, legal risk when you display your weapon, but there are times and the more cases we look at the more we find specific instances where the display of the weapon without firing it solved the problem it broke contact it ended it and uh, and nobody had to die do you explore that with your students at all absolutely and that's a nuance again that if you don't make the distinctions between can put people in a, a really precarious situation and of course the I'll put air quotes around knowledge that we receive and we're indoctrinated with from childhood and infancy all the way up as a result of primetime TV and Hollywood and video games and, you know, all of those really fun theatrical experiences. Those are not teachable tools. And yet that's where a lot of people's I did this because isn't that what you're supposed to do? Like you just described, they shoot on the retreat of someone or as they're running away because they think they're helping. Well, we all saw that in a movie at least once or twice throughout the ages. And, of course, that is not how this works in the legal system. 
So much of the time that we have these conversations in classes, it's kind of a myth-busting topic. What is a defensive display versus what is brandishing? What is threatening? The firearm itself is not a de-escalation tool up until a certain and very specific moment, at which point a defensive display is necessary. And hopefully it's a tool that, if used properly in those constructs, can dissuade the attacker, much like what happened in this case, and no one gets hurt. Steve, we've talked about before that sometimes people have a mindset that if they are going to draw the weapon, they have to have been justified in using it, and that sometimes they'll fall through. And we've seen cases where if just the display of the weapons managed to to change the circumstances that's for the better. And here's one thing I'm interested in because you've had real life experience with this. If um, it, you had somebody at gunpoint at one point who had broken into your home, you told that story on this podcast. And I'm curious, is, is there a difference between keeping someone at gunpoint for the purposes of making them stay there so that they can suffer some consequence or the end uh, in the end, like say when police show up, or is having them run away with the, the dangerous situation being uh, resolved and concluded just as acceptable or perhaps even a better outcome? Do you know what I'm saying there? Uh, actually, th- yes, sir. I think that's the preferable outcome. Uh, like I said in that uh, podcast when I was you know going over in some detail uh, my incident, uh, I held the person at gunpoint. And I held them for probably, uh, I was going to say it was probably somewhere between 5 and 10 minutes. It felt like 45 or 50 minutes. And uh, it was not pleasant. The situation became more tense. Uh, I was determined uh, at that point that I was going to hold him for the police. And he very much uh, believed that. Uh, Since then, uh, I think I've told that story. Afterwards, that very night, I said, wow, I screwed this thing up, and I am lucky to have survived that, just not only from the standpoint of getting harmed myself or, you know, finding myself charged with a crime. And so since then, after doing a lot of training, I'm very much of the opinion right now that if there's just not an absolutely good reason to hold that person there, then there's nothing wrong with letting that person go ahead and leave the scene. And when I say the only thing that it might cause me to say I need to maintain control of this person is simply because I believe this person would represent a threat to uh, other people. Uh, that's one of the reasons that it's actually illegal in a lot of jurisdictions to shoot a fleeing felon if the felon is at that time moving in a direction and with, you know, the tools and intent to possibly harm someone else. And that is very much their intent. Uh, Otherwise, if they are doing that just to escape, uh, it's it's not correct, it's not lawful to shoot that person in in, in effect to force an arrest. And I want to throw this out to you guys too, because if you're in a situation where you're deliberately holding someone at gunpoint let's say ostensibly to keep them there for when the police arrive, the police can apprehend him. There's this horrifying moment where maybe the police don't know what they're walking into and the police show up to the scene of a crime where there's reports of a firearm being involved and there you are, the only one there standing up with a gun in your hand, I, I imagine that in not all circumstances, and I think, Steve, you wrote about a case like this recently, uh, you may be mistaken for the bad guy. Absolutely. So so, so holding someone at gunpoint, uh, waiting for the police to arrive, is a, is a potential way to get yourself shot by cops, if you're not careful about how that transaction goes down. Uh, that or another concealed carrier. Or with, another, uh, you know, good intentions and bad judgment. So, and that goes to the context. And Tatiana, Steve brought this up earlier, and I wanted to talk to you about it in your interactions with your students. 
would you agree that there are different classifications of defense of others? We talked about the, defending your children would be a a different whole ball game than defending a a friend or a coworker or even a stranger at a bank, for example. Absolutely. I mean, you have yourself as priority one, and if you're a parent, your children are priority one plus. <laughs> That's just how it works in the land of parenthood. Yes. But the law also has something to say about persons you're responsible for. So let's say you're a caregiver for a handicapped individual or an elderly person or a child. I mean, that person may not be blood relative to you, but you are the responsible entity there, guardian per se, uh, literally and sometimes figuratively too. So yes, there is a spectrum of individuals and the way we kind of categorize that so that people don't think that they're just going to walk by, you know, someone raping a woman without participating would be to consider the information you have at hand. And if you are... If you're in the Walmart parking lot, for example, this is an example we often use, and you're walking dusk hours, you're pushing your cart, and you see a minivan and a vehicle, and between the two parked vehicles, you witness a younger gentleman, an older woman, a baby in a stroller, and some kids being loaded into the minivan. And it looks like a domestic. It looks like an argument. It's, it's heated. It's, it's getting loud. And what do most people do? Well, they avert their eyes. They try not to participate. Um, they try to be polite and allow people their privacy within, you know, nothing's gotten violent yet. But as you per approach the gap in the vehicles where the people are standing, things escalate. And the younger gentleman is now on top of the older woman, and he's, he's pounding on her. Like, he is aggressively, aggressively attacking her on the ground. What do you do? And that's an interesting question because the assumption for most hearing the story is that the male is the aggressor and the older female is the victim. But if given a little bit more fact, you would discover that the, the gentleman is actually the father of those children and the woman is the attacker who tried to stab one of the children as they were getting in the car. And that changes things. So you have to be careful about your assumptions walking up onto a true third-party intervention with limited information and knowledge. You also have to consider that many off-duty law enforcement look just like you and I, and gender is also a huge dissuasion as people assume who the bad guy is. Age is also an assumption where people assume which one the attacker is versus the victim. And those assumptions are what really give people pause before they dive in wholeheartedly and start lighting up the person who looks like they're prevailing in the fight. Yeah, interesting. And so that so the closer your relationship with somebody, the higher the context you have, the more understanding you have of what the dynamic threat situation is. And so there's like a correlation between how well do you know the person and how well are you able to discern exactly what threat you think you perceive is going on. Absolutely. That's, that's definitely a piece of it. And then, of course, we have community individuals, members of your congregation, perhaps. Uh, there are plenty of people that walk into a place of worship in a state of distress. Does that make them a villain? Not necessarily. They just might be in a state of dress or distress. Or are they somebody who is potentially a serious threat and danger to the community? And that's where we hope individuals spend as much time as possible with Mr. Steve Moses here so that they get the proper training to put a plan in place. Thank you, um, I refer Appreciate people you. to you all the time, Steve, because you you explore those concepts out very, very clearly. And this is one of those within a community, there are knowns and there are unknowns. Your, your coworkers at work, your congregation, your classmates, all of that comes into play. Uh, who, who are the fish that you swim with regularly and should a shark swim in well, what does that really look like, and how should you respond? John, legally, yeah, and we'll come around to that in a moment, Steve, but legally, do you think it makes a difference the how well or how much context that the armed defender has when they intervene? He talked about this circumstance hypothetically from the point of view that he was just a uh, unknown bystander we learned, as you said, in our further research, that he was texted by the woman who was being kidnapped and he knew her 
I believe he was a neighbor, and he came specifically to intervene on behalf of someone that he had a relationship with, uh, and he had a context for the the moment. What I take from that is the closer the relationship, the more information and insight you have as to what the true picture is. The big problem is coming to the rescue of somebody who doesn't need rescued, pulling a gun on somebody who's not actually committing a crime of some sort, or mixed allegiances. Steve made the comment about domestic situations where the alleged victim of the assault turns on law enforcement when they get there. These are dynamic, emotional, especially domestic violence kinds of situations that very, very hard to know what's going on and be willing to take the risk of the consequences, not just the risk of people turning on you and you be injured, but the risk of being arrested for committing an assault when these people wind up testifying against you or sued, uh, something like that. You know, so we, we, we talk about this concept of stripping away the ambiguity. The, the whole notion is getting a clear picture of what's actually going on other than as opposed to what your first sense or your first impression is. And by having some sort of familial connection or some association, then you have a much better, much better insight. And therefore, I think your decisions to become involved are, are more calculated, more rational, and more information-based. I, I did want to comment, though, on this idea of holding someone at gunpoint, just to point out that if the event itself is over and you're not intervening to stop the commission of the crime or coming to the aid of another who would have the right to use force to defend themselves against the person that was the attacker, keeping in mind that when you defend others, you step into the shoes legally of the person that's being attacked and you have the right to use the force that that person would have the right to use and, and no more and no more once that's done and you're there now holding a gun on someone ostensibly waiting for the police to get there this is no longer defense of others this isn't self-defense this is a form of citizens arrest and that's very different and that's very jurisdictionally dependent as well. In most places, you have the right to use the threat of deadly force or some levels of force when you have probable cause to believe a felony has been committed. Certainly, if you've witnessed that felony, that gives you probable cause. But once you hold somebody at gunpoint for the purposes of the police getting there, you have effectively taken them in custody through the citizen's arrest. And that's fraught with its own set of risks, including yourself being charged with false imprisonment or uh, assault if your perceptions were incorrect or if you used too much force for the situation. And I'm not aware of any situation where you're allowed to use deadly force to affect a citizen's arrest unless deadly force is being directed to you, and then it's self-defense. So even if you hold someone at gunpoint, that does not mean that you have the right to shoot them if they decide to break away. So that's, again, very risky stuff and something that before you do, you should spend a couple of hours figuring out what you're allowed to do and what you absolutely can't do within the state that you live. But it, interesting, because once you've stop the felony from occurring if you hold them at gunpoint now ostensibly you're just preventing them from fleeing because you've already stopped the crime and and now you're in different legal territory yeah i think that's fundamentally changed if the person is threatening someone with a knife and you point a gun at them and they drop the knife and they just stand there then they are no longer a threat to that, that other person and, and arguably not a threat to you either. Now you've, in my view anyway, that has now transitioned from 
defense of others to now you holding that person in your custody as a citizen's arrest waiting for the police to get there. And and I think that's one thing that I'm constantly not surprised anymore, but fascinated with in these cases is how quickly the justification can vanish depending upon the actions of the parties involved in a very fast-moving dynamic situation. Yes, absolutely. Fast-moving, dynamic, fluid. And then you add some confusion, misinformation, lack of information to all of that, and the typical chaos and confusion that associates these things that happen in an instant. And there's all a whole bunch of things, as Tatiana pointed out, that can go wrong very, very quickly. Uh, Steve, Tatiana was uh, very generous in her description of how you work with people when it comes to, and tell me if I'm wrong here, uh, like with the with the church defense sort of stuff. These are people who yeah, who are in the, at that point, they're taking on the responsibility of uh, protecting others. And so maybe since Tatiana framed that context, you can give us just a couple of points that you talk about in those training sessions about how to handle that responsibility. Well, what is very interesting is that you have to disavow uh, many of the students at the beginning of the class that the notion that they have any kind of special police powers just because they're on a voluntary church security team. As a matter of fact, they have no more rights than anybody else in the congregation. And uh, we go to great lengths to impress upon them the dangers of trying to uh, detain or affect assistance arrest on someone that's causing a problem. And basically, if that person is not just an active threat to others at that particular time, we actually encourage our, uh, our, our team members to uh, let that person actually, uh, you know, leave the premises, escort them to the edge of the premises, keep an eye on them, contact law enforcement, and let law enforcement, you know, handle any kind of arrest just because it's just so easy to uh, make a mistake. And it could very well be that no mistake was made, but regardless, uh, you still find yourself charged with a crime and having to deal with that. So uh, I think everything that uh, Don was saying about that is absolutely correct. And actually, I have a question for Tatiana. And my question to you, Tatiana, is uh, how many students of yours or what percentage of your students actually seem to be surprised when you tell them that if they interrupt like a home invasion or they stop someone at gunpoint, that actually they can let the other person go as opposed to holding them for the police? I don't know about a percentage, but there are a lot of jaws that drop and quizzical looks that take place mm-hmm. when we have that conversation. And it's a, it's a three-minute conversation in the midst of many of the concealed carry application classes when that question arises. You know, the firearm does not have to be a finality, and it is certainly not necessary to press the trigger because you drew the gun. And I often have that issue to deal with where the, the, the premise is, well, if the gun is coming out of the holster, it's because it must be used to fire. And so if they've made the commitment prematurely to draw the gun, then they feel that they must also fire it, and that is not the case. So building in decision-making and patience and a little bit of pause so that you can take in all the information around you before you leap to the trigger is typically where that conversation goes. So yes, it's typically the same individuals who are ready to don a superhero cape that are also shocked to realize that life doesn't happen the way it does in the movies. Before we wrap up this conversation, Tatiana, there's a tangential issue that made me think of some of our prior discussions and that's the uh uh the kidnapper here uh eventually pled guilty and one of the things he pled guilty to was using force uh that was capable of causing great bodily injury and i think a lot of times armed defenders 
might not have a clear idea on where the threshold is between, uh, oh, that hurts, and oh, this is, in fact, great bodily injury that is worthy of a potentially lethal response. And, and do you ever... I know you've had conversations about trying to paint the difference between those two. Oh, certainly. Many people are, are amazed to read the definition of what serious bodily injury means. And it reads like a horror movie. It does not discuss the escalation. It does not discuss an owie, a boo-boo, a chipped tooth, a broken pinky finger, hurt feelings, crushed pride. None of those things are part of that equation. It really comes down to disfigurement, dismemberment, uh, serious injury to a bodily organ, uh, basically up until the classification of death. You know, we are now hands-on or the consequence of an action or a strike would result in death or, you know, the worst of the worst, which is permanent disfigurement or extended convalescence necessary for recovery of health. So, I mean, it's, we're talking about months in the hospital here. This is not a, a disagreement scuffle. This is not the first time you get your bell rung so hard you see the sideways lightning, uh, which many people who have never been in a, even a, a sportsman-like brawl, a sportsman-like fight where you're sparring in some kind of martial arts or boxing environment, They've never experienced being impacted by a fist or a blow. The first time they receive that that feeling of the impact can be mind-blowing. You know, it's game-changing yeah. because you think you're going to die. But really, no, you, you got an owie, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, and, and, then, and go ahead. No, we'll compound that with now my pride is hurt. And if there are witnesses, which are buddies watching, then, you know, then that escalates things in people's emotive state. And we can seem, find people making very rash and bad decisions. Hopefully there is not a fire involved. Yeah. One of the reasons this stood out to me is that two specific acts, I think, qualify as serious bodily injury. One is, in this case, we read about a brick to the face. Uh, I think we can agree that that, gets us to the point where fear of serious bodily injury is there and the other don you mentioned this one uh choked to the point of uh unconsciousness uh, i know there can be a lot of damage done to uh, very vital parts of your body and your neck and throat when choking is applied so so there's some solid examples of serious bodily injury in the context of this case well, not, not only the notion of the serious bodily injury that's associated with that kind of choking or strangulation, but if you lose consciousness or if you're not alert anymore, you can't defend yourself. You become exceptionally vulnerable. So on your way to the loss of consciousness, you certainly have the right to defend yourself. That would be considered a risk of serious bodily harm or death in that context. But just because somebody puts their hands on your shoulders and shakes you a little bit or you get into a slapping contest, you haven't certainly risen to the level where someone would try to objectively look at this and say, yeah, you are facing uh, a clear, imminent threat, credible threat of great bodily harm or death. And unless it gets there, as Tatiana very eloquently pointed out, then you do not have the right under the law to use deadly force to defend yourself. Hey, Steve. So final thought here, given the facts as we know them, you know, just from the press reports that we were able to patch together, uh, did this defender get a good result in this case? Uh, I believe so. I believe so. Uh, one, uh, he stopped a, uh, what appeared to be a crime in progress. Uh, two, uh, no one was, uh, he didn't harm anybody. He was not harmed. And uh, three, apparently he was not charged with a criminal offense. So I would say that that was indeed a, a very good outcome. Don, from a legal standpoint, we know that there is a place for defensive display. Uh, is this a good example of how defensive display can be used justifiably to avoid a life-threatening situation? 
Yeah, I think you can check off all the boxes on this one. I think under the circumstances, as he witnessed them, what he knew from the information in the text, he would also have known by virtue of that information just how violent this guy was. He may even have known who this guy was at that point, that he would have every reason uh, legally to be justified in displaying the weapon. And since he didn't pull the trigger, we never have to address that. So I think he did the right thing within the right context. And showed a lot of uh, discretion and restraint in that regard as well. Agreed. Tatiana, you brought this case to us to explore. Uh, I assume you've used this uh, as an example to students in your classes before. What's the, the big lesson that you usually get out of telling this story? The big lesson actually comes from the domestic violence conversation, and it's as a result of the act of leaving a domestic violence uh, relationship that, uh, from a women's self-defense standpoint, and this is where we see many women coming to defensive arts and to firearms and to concealed carry, that the act of leaving that disengagement from the relationship is often where we see a real escalation of violence and their personal safety is in even greater jeopardy. And so making sure that they have a strategy, a plan, the right, not only tools, but paperwork in place and a support team in place to protect them emotionally, physically, et cetera, is a really important thing to consider. So all of the things we discussed and then some, the catalyst for this entire story is as a result of a relationship falling apart with a violent actor as part of that party. All right, everybody, that's the show. Thanks for listening through to the end. In case you weren't one of the people yelling at your podcast apparatus, the answer to Don's question about what's that show with Groucho Marx, it's You Bet Your Life. We'll be back next time like another podcast with Tatiana Whitlock looking at another story involving the use of force in defense of another. Until then, be smart, stay safe, take care. <laughs>